Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Thanks for giving me a call, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a horrible inside joke, but you're about to get it. You are listening to Linear Digressions. Okay, I swear this is genetic. The dad jokes, they just come out. We're talking about Kalman filters, and so that was my horrible, horrible introduction to this episode. Thanks, Ben. Um, I think that really <laughs> that really added a lot. Yeah, we're talking about uh, Kalman filters. Uh, this is something that is was near and dear to my heart uh, this weekend. So I I underwent a uh, athletic experience, which is that I ran my first marathon over the no weekend. No way! Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Like we didn't even talk about this before the show. Congratulations. That's awesome. I know, right? Um, I'm slowly recovering my ability to walk. Um, so one of the things about running a marathon is, uh, so first of all, I have never run a marathon before. This was my first one. So this was a new experience and one never quite knows what to expect. When you're training for a marathon, the training process, you have these progressively longer long runs, uh, that usually top out at 20 miles. Um, but as you know, a marathon is 26 miles and so it's huh. fundamentally kind of difficult to know how long it's going to take you to finish a marathon because on the one hand, you have your training experiences, but on the other hand, they don't generalize perfectly to the actual event because the actual event is longer. I, I have a quick question for you about that because I, I only can run one mile. Actually, I ran a mile and a half straight the other day. I think I have further to go. Um, is there is there a reason that you only run 20 miles when you're training? Is it because you don't want to just totally kill your body? Yeah, it's a risk of injury thing. And uh, so, <laughs> but one of the things, of course, that's a little bit scary about running a marathon is is that once you pass the 20 mile mark, you're kind of in unknown territory and you might completely fall apart. And, you know, running a marathon around mile 23, 24, 25 is, is not a super fun uh, experience. Um, but anyway, I, you know, you're out on the course, you have three and a half, four hours to think very deeply about all kinds of things. Uh -huh. And one of the things that you start to obsess about a little bit is when am I going to be done, right? So how fast <laughs> am I running? <laughs> how fast am I running based on like my own sort of the way that I feel right now? I don't wear a watch, um, but some people obviously, if you're wearing a watch, you might have a little bit more data than, than I had when you're running about how fast you're going. And you also have uh, mile markers that you usually see. And if you're fortunate enough, they might have um, clocks that are next to them. And so you can see, okay, I'm at mile 15 and it's two hours and 47 minutes or whatever. Um, That's and crazy. So, so as you're running this marathon, you're, you're collecting data on your position and you're collecting data on your, uh, on your rough speed and you're trying to use that to figure out when the torture will end. <laughs> Bingo. Bingo. Oh. That is exactly what it is. And, and a little bit like, how well am I doing? Like, if I have a goal oh, okay. of coming in in under four hours, like, am I on track for that? And these are all kind of uh, messy measurements to be making. Number one, my velocity measurement is just my own feeling of how fast I'm running, which, sure. which is yeah, actually pretty... Really yeah, I mean, it's pretty okay, actually, after you've been training as much as I have, but like I could easily be off by 15 seconds a mile or something. That would, that would, that would be easy to understand. Um, the second thing is that you have uh, this information that you're getting from the clocks along the course, but 
there are a few things that can be tricky about trusting those measurements. One is you don't know if the clock is exactly at uh, the mile marker that it says it's at. So the clock can be sort of off by a few seconds just based on whether it happens to be a few feet down the road. You know, you see the clock coming as you're running down the street. And so like, what time do you take as like the time that you're crossing mile marker Mm -hmm. 18, you know, and the biggest one of all is that uh, this was a fairly big marathon and it took me, I think five or so minutes to even cross the starting line from when the clocks were started. And so there's little like chip timers in your bib uh, so that the five minutes gets kind of subtracted off at the end. But all of these, all of these clocks have this unknown oh, fudge factor added onto them. So, you know, I don't I don't even really know my time. I just know that this time is like probably four or five minutes longer than how long I've actually been running. So there's all these sources of information, but each of them is like not super great. Oh. Um, and so trying to figure out when I'm going to finish, because I had a goal of finishing in under four hours, trying to figure out when I was going to finish is actually a fairly complicated kind of like projection problem. Yeah. Okay, so how so how does this tie in with Coleman filters, which is our topic for the day? And oh, no, science? it doesn't. It's just me talking about my marathon because that's what marathoners do. So they get really obnoxious about it. Um, right. No, it has a lot to do with Coleman filters. <laughs> oh, it does? Um, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So a Coleman filter is actually the kind of algorithm that would deal with a situation exactly like this, where oh, you have, um, yeah, so you have sort of this uh, system that can be, in particular, uh, it's used for systems that are evolving in time. Uh, so you, you're kind of like collecting information on the system system as it's going. And you have some idea about the underlying dynamics of the system. So that would be sort of like for me, how fast I feel like I'm running. And then you also have external measurements that you're getting. And those can can have significant amounts of noise that are associated with them. So I have my, my internal idea of how fast I'm moving and sort of where I am in the course. And that's kind of noisy because I'm trusting my own like sense of how fast I'm running and you know, that can be off. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also getting these external measurements, which are the clock measurements, which I know have biases and also there's some, some random variance to them. So those are not super helpful either. So it sounds like kind of from a big picture perspective, you have a bunch of inputs, all of which have some amount of noise to them. And the fundamental problem that you're trying to solve is you're trying to extrapolate. And so if you've got a little bit of noise early on in the course, and then you extrapolate really far out into the future from those earlier measurements, a small amount of noise earlier will be uh, a fairly large discrepancy by the time you get to the end of the course. Uh, So that's fundamentally the problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I'm going, absolutely. I'm getting more and more information about how I'm actually doing. So for example, at the beginning of the course, I know that people are packed in really tightly um, it's kind of hard to maneuver around. So you kind of have to go with the flow of like what everybody else is running. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on where you start, maybe this will be slower or faster than your sort of normal start. So the beginning, the beginning of the race is like a super weird time to be trying to time yourself because you're really worried about like making sure you're not going to bump into anybody and making sure you're not running too fast. And so I, I went back and looked at, uh, some of my splits and I was running fairly slow at the beginning half of, of the race, mostly cause I didn't want to like overdo myself and I was running a little bit cautiously. Yeah. So I guess the, the way to solve this problem is to refine your 
extrapolations as you gain more data. And so yeah, yeah. presumably you have to find some way of dealing with that noise. And humans are really good at that. Uh, humans are really good at kind of just taking a fuzzy problem-solving approach to problems like this. But with computers, you need to actually implement some kind of algorithm that accounts for all of that. And I think that's where we, that's where we get to common filters. Right, right. So what a common filter is going to do is it takes your uh, sort of these equations that describe the underlying dynamics of the system. So this would be something like my position and my velocity and the fact that they're related, uh, that the position is the integral of velocity. And it uses uh, my position and my velocity at a given point to say like, okay, at the next point in the course, at I'm at mile marker number one, I'm crossing the line at what I think is, let's say, a nine-minute mile. And so I think that at mile marker number two, I'm going to be at 18 minutes. And so then when I show up at mile marker number two, I might see something like, oh, it's uh, 17 minutes and 45 seconds. And that might be because the uh, the clock is a little bit misplaced from where like the true two-mile marker is. It might be because I've sped up. It might be because I'm, you know, not paying very close attention and, and it wasn't actually nine minutes for the first mile, but it was more like 845. Like, who knows? There's mm. all kinds of things that could be um, that could be going on in there. But I say like, OK, so now I've what I think is probably going on is I have something like an 845 or maybe like an 850 mile, my second mile. So based on that, I think that at mile number three, um, I'm going to be at whatever number I think it is. And so as you accrue more data points, uh, even though each of those data points has noise, you start to converge on a better solution than you would have had if you had just taken one of the data points by itself and then tried to extrapolate out, you know, all the way to the end. So another application of Kalman filters might be if you're trying to solve the trajectory and, and correct for it of like ballistic missiles or something like that, something where... Uh, I mean, basically a ballistic missile is running a marathon. It's just a different form of propulsion and there's no human inside thinking, oh, this is so painful. Um, <laughs> it does have a, a couple of other dimensions as well. It's got the you know left and right dimension and up and down dimension. It's also got distance and it has to kind of find a way to correct properly and well enough over time, ideally better and better over time, that by the time it actually gets to its destination, it's right on point. Yeah, in fact, I think one of the first like large scale applications of of Kalman filtering was in sort of like the World War II Cold War era when they had to solve the exact problem of of knowing where missiles were flying because obviously uh, that can be a tricky measurement to make. It's a very long yeah. distance, and there's there are lots wind. of atmospheric effects, and there's yeah. wind, and there's all kinds of stuff that can go on. Um, another application, a little more modern, but one that's near and dear to my heart is that uh, in the Atlas detector, at least when I worked there, we had the problem of trying to reconstruct the trajectories of charged particles uh, this is through an, the uh, detector. Th this is in a, a particle collider. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you have the two proton beams. They sort of meet in the middle of your detector. Uh, the protons collide with each other at very high velocities. And then there's all these electrons and protons and pions and stuff like that that flies out of the middle. And we have... Um, these concentric layers of detector elements that surround that collision point. And so when, let's say, an electron traverses your detector, it's going to hit different layers of uh, active material that make measurements. Those get read out. And then we have to say, like, oh, there was an electron here. And that process of taking these little uh, electrical flashes that you see at various points in your detector and 
turning that into a coherent trajectory of a particle. That's what the, the tracking algorithm is. And what we would use for that was a Kalman filter. So you'd find uh, what we would call track seeds, and those would be a couple of hits that were adjacent to each other in the detector. And so you'd say, like, okay, I see two hits, one in layer one, one in layer two. Uh, I draw a line between them, and then I uh, project this, this line forward onto layer three. And so if there was a particle here, then I would expect to see a hit somewhere in the vicinity of, you know, where that line would put it. That makes sense. And it seems like in that application, rather than projecting ahead as you go, you're, you're projecting ahead from past measurements. So you're not, in that case, changing the trajectory of the thing because you can't do that. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a spatial extrapolation, not a, not a temporal one. But right. it's the exact same idea that, that there's some underlying sort of dynamics of the particle that are involved. And it, weird things can happen with this particle. It's bending in the magnetic field. It can like hit, you know, ricochet off the nucleus of some atom and get a kink in it. And so reconstructing that trajectory is actually a fairly complicated thing. And so um, you have this kind of leapfrogging algorithm where you, you start to get an idea of where the particle might have been. You make a prediction of where you think it's going to be. You look for it around there. You hopefully will find some kind of hit. And that f hit will then uh, refine your understanding of what the trajectory was. And then you take that refined understanding and you go look for your next hit. And you just work your way from the inside out just looking for each successive hit um, as you go. And that's the way that the, that the tracking works um, in Atlas, or at least it did there. Um, it can be very uh, computationally intense to do this when you have lots and lots of hits that are sitting around because you have to sort of evaluate each one of them. Uh, it's a big combinatorial problem, so they're, they're always working on ways to speed this up a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's something that's, that's at the heart of, of particle physics today, as it turns out. Linear Digressions is a podcast about data science and machine learning, produced and recorded in the studios of Udacity, a company dedicated to education. We've got some awesome courses made by people like Katie and me in data science and other tech fields. We should also remind you that all views expressed during this program were those of the speakers and not of Udacity. This is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you don't mind, leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. Thank you for being here. And we'll see you next time.